Podcastle, episode 391, for November 24, 2015, In the Rustle of Pages, by Cassandra Kaur, rated PG. Hello, welcome back to your fanciful flying fortress in the clouds, Podcastle. Today I can see down below a bunch of very odd architectural structures. Some look familiar, but some are just downright bizarre. Shall we go take a look, you and I? Splendid. Podcastle is proud to present In the Rustle of Pages by Cassandra Kaur. It first appeared in Shimmer Magazine, issue number 25. Cassandra is the business developer for Singaporean video games publisher Isbrid Games. She also writes for Ars Technica UK whenever possible. When not doing either of those things, she practices Muay Thai, tries to find time to dance, and reads voraciously. She also writes a variety of fiction and has a novella entitled Rupert Wong Cannibal Chef out with Abaddon Books. It's narrated for you by Anaya Lay. Anaya lives in Seattle, Washington, where she sells real estate under a different name, writes, cooks, plays board games, takes gratuitous walks, runs the Strange Horizons podcast, and plots to take over the world. You can hear her audio work in other places, including John Joseph Adams and Hugh Howey's The End Is Nigh and The End Is Now anthologies. You can find her writing in places such as Lightspeed, Apex, Daily Science Fiction and Escape Pod. You can stalk her on her blog or follow her on Twitter at Anayalei. Links are in the show notes. But now, it really is for the best. Surely you must see that. It's only logical. Hiya, so stubborn. Well, at least you can enjoy the story. In the Rustle of Pages by Cassandra Carr Auntie, are you ready to come home with us? Li Jing looks up from the knot of lavender yarn in her hands, knitting needles ceasing their silvery chatter. The old woman smiles, head cocked. There is something subtly cat-like about the motion, a smoothness that belies the lines time has combed into her round face, a light that burns where life has waned. I'm sorry, Li Jing says, voice firmer than one would expect. She fumbles for her hearing aid, finds it in a graveyard of yellowed books and colored fabrics. What did you say? We want you to live with us, Auntie, so we can take care of you. Make sure you have everything you want. The guest is a woman, too young by Li Jing's count, the planes of her cinnamon face virginal, unscarred by wrinkles. She speaks both too loudly and too slowly, Li Jing thinks, as she counts the faults of her visitor's diction. Where consonants should exist, there are clumsy substitutes. D's where thiz should hold vigil. Li Jing does not correct her, even though the gracelessness appalls. The fugue of youth is trouble enough, she reasons. Live with you, Li Jing says, abrupt when her thoughts empty enough to allow space for the present. 
but this is my home, and it's the best solution. And we've discussed it for weeks already, talked it over with the whole family. The gentleness bites chunks from Li Jing's patience. It's a familiar softness, a delicacy of speech reserved only for the invalid or the very young, a lilt that declares its recipient incapable. Arrogance, Li Jing thinks, but again says nothing. The younger woman, barely a larvae of a thing, lowers to her knees, hands piled over Li Jing's own. Your husband, we don't want you to be alone when he, you know. Li Jing looks to where her husband lies snoring, already more monument than man, a pleasing arrangement of dark oak and book titles, elegant calligraphy traveling his skin like a road map. Li Jing allows herself a melancholy smile. The ache of loss to come is immutable, enormous. But there is pride, too. In the armoire beside the marital bed sleeps a chronology of her husband's metamorphosis. Scans inventorizing the tiling on the walls of his heart, the stairwells budding in his arteries. For all of the hurt it conjures, Li Jing thinks his metamorphosis beautiful, too. Before the old woman can structure an answer, the younger unfolds in a waterfall rush of dark, gleaming hair and mournful noises. Fist balled against her chest. Shang Wei, where are you? I can't, I can't. It's too much. You talk to her. A muscular silhouette obstructs through the doorway. Sunlight-limbed, statuesque. Shadow gives way to intelligent eyes, a jaw softened by propensity, and shoulders mausoleum broad. Ah, Ma, Shang Wei declares as he cuts through the space between them with long strides. He ignores the younger woman. How are you doing? Li Jing wraps his arm with her knuckles, a blow too light to offend, but too sharp to ignore. No need for such wasteful courtesy. I already told you that I'm not leaving your Ah Kong here alone. Shang Wei does not flinch from the assault, only squeezes his features into a mask of repentance. Sorry, Ama. I know how you feel about this, but you have to trust us. We only have your best interests at heart. We want to move both of you somewhere else, somewhere you can be cared for. I... Li Jing interrupts, prim. We're fine here. A thermocitect came last week to check on your grandfather. He says it's natural for paintings to hurt a little, and the paint should clear once his ribs have adjusted to them. There's no need for anyone to fuss over us. Her grandson and his companion exchange glances like rats in conspiracy. Li Jing's mouth thickens into a moo. Shang Wei is the first to slip into a language Li Jing does not recognize, a bubbling of vowels. His woman, girlfriend, wife, dalliance? Li Jing recalls only the flippancy of their relationship, responds in kind, her words accompanied by a flicker dance of small, elegant hands. 
It takes heartbeats for Li Jing's presence to rot into the background, her presence collateral to their fevered conversation. But the old woman is unruffled, relieved even. Dialogue had never held the same glitter for her as it did for others. She clamors free of her chair. The two do not notice. Wordless, Li Jing pads to where her husband slumbers. She touches the back of her fingers to his forehead. His skin is cool, rough with the dewing of feldspar. Li Jing's brows clump. She had expected timber, not stone. I don't think you understand how much good this will do, or what this means for you both. Shang Wei's voice sounds against her musings, deep as the church bell's eulogy. We're not trying to separate you, if that's what you're worried about. You'll be able to visit Akong anytime you wish. Yes, Auntie, the girl supplies, her voice like glass bells, bright and brittle. You'll even be able to pick out his nurse, if you like, and his meals. You won't have to worry about visiting hours. They'll have a cot for you. And the rest of the time, you'll be taken care of by your loving children. Jiling loses her words in a thunder of exasperation. You don't understand. He doesn't want that. I don't want that. We promised we'll take care of each other. Always. Shang Wei smiles, cloyingly sympathetic, head dipped in apology. How will you take care of each other like this? He's so old, Ahma, and so are you. He doesn't know what he wants. You both... The two swap knowing expressions while Li Xing stares, lips taut with unhappiness. What I meant to say is that we're worried that you might be a little confused, Zhang Wei continues, spiderweb soft. I only want the best for you, Ama. Li Jing thins her lips. What's best for me is staying with your grandfather. I, all right, I understand. But hear me out. She recognizes argument in the bend of their spines, the tilt of their mouths. Dissatisfaction kindles in her breast, but Li Jing does not give voice to it. She knows from experience they won't relent until she is subdued. So Li Jing nods meekly instead, dispenses maybes with shrugs, hoping against reason that indecision will outlast her grandchildren's persistence. She sighs as they close in on her, allowing the tide of their words to wash over her like foam on a distant shore, carrying away talk of relocation, complex treatments, and futures she stores no interest in. Li Jing is unique. Even from infancy, it was clear her skin would never be mantled with marble and that her eyes would never be replaced by glass, her bones would. At fifteen, no signage inked itself on her flesh as it did others. No portent of architectural occupation. It complicated her relationships, of course. By the time Li Jing was wise enough to court partnership, city sickness had become pandemic, 
so widespread that humanity was forced to leaven it into normalcy. One by one, proponents mushroomed from the carcass of fear, oozing grand ideas. Why was this disease so terrible? Did it not provide a concrete immortality? Consequently, few became willing to stomach a lover whose lifespan could be measured in decades. Death was never easy, but it was infinitely harder when you knew you would never walk the halls of your beloved, would never laze in their moon-drenched balconies. Li Jing consumed their prejudices without complaint and used the dearth of companionship to build herself other loves, literature, mathematics, the reading of stars, the sleek alley cats that haunted the shadows behind her home. Months became years. In that time, loneliness grew into so much of a cherished companion that Li Jing almost chose the quiet over her husband-to-be. She was forty when she met round-faced Shang Yong, who wore the names of her favorite books on his sandstone pale arms. Forty, and almost too wise to risk her heart. But Shang Yong had gentle hands, a gentle smile, and when he laughed, his voice was like a rustle of pages. Li Jing did not love him immediately. Instead, she learned to do so in increments, brick by brick, until she built her heart a new home. They married four years after their first encounter, with a discretion that Li Jing was so enamored of, and for a small eternity, they were happy. Li Jing. Her husband's voice is roughened by sleep and the creak of new hinges. What time is it? Late. She glances up from her book and dog-ears the page, expression papered with concern. You missed dinner. I'm sorry. His contrition makes her ache its childlike earnestness evoking a pang for when they spoke without needing to keep one eye on caution. It's just, I know, says Li Jing, rising to secure an arm around his side, a hand around his wrist. Together, they lift him, a feat that scrapes their breath into tatters. In recent months, Zhang Yang has grown ponderous, his skeleton weighed down with concrete. But they persevere. Slowly, they migrate into Zhang Yang's new dining space, a flip table bolted to the wall beside an overstuffed red chair, and deposit him there. Before she moves to retrieve his meal, Li Jing presses her mouth against her husband's cheek, impulse quick, drinking in the skin's faint warmth. She is possessive of his heat these days, knowing it'd be gone soon, payment for cold glass and teak, passionless metals. So, Zhang Wei came over with his lady friend today. Li Jing keeps the cadence of her voice breezy, syllables dancing between troubles, too light to be caught between teeth. Zhang Wei? 
Why sing second son, Li Jing says, patient. Personal experience has made her accustomed to the fashion with which age makes sieves of a person's mind, memory hissing from the gaps like stardust at the slats of dawn. The one who peed in his pants until he was eight. He grew up very tall. She ladles stew into a bowl, ornaments it with sprigs of parsley before picking out a quartet of soft white buns. Feeling wicked, Li Jing appends chocolate pudding to the arrangement. Why not? She thinks savagely. He only has such a short time left. He was the one with the stained glass eyes. Li Jing shakes her head. No, that was his brother, Zhang Long. Zhang Long, her husband repeats, cautious. Do I, do we have? I can check. Gently, she deposits his dinner on the table, before molding fingers to the gaunt architecture of his face, skin to still human skin. Li Jing breathes deep. This is their secret. As though to compensate for the immeasurable emptiness that is to come, the thousand strong ways her heart will break on routines denied a partner. Serendipity provisioned Li Jing with a bizarre gift. In the beginning, the gift manifested as mere instinct, an aptitude for predicting alterations in her husband's biology. Over the months, it coalesced into a tool, an ability to edit the topography of his disease. Though they had initially hoped otherwise, hers was an imperfect talent. Li Jing could not bleach the sickness from him, could only mold its trajectory. With the pragmatism of the old, the two decided they would not despair, but would turn disaster into providence. Brick by brick, they would build Zhang Yong until he could provide for Li Jing in death as he did in life. This will sting, Li Jing warns, the words hatched from habit rather than intent. Magic stirs in her lungs, motes of flame. She holds them till they become needle points, surgical sharp, before exhaling. In her mind's eye, Li Jing sees them perforate Zhang Yong's skin, tunneling into vein and sinew. Zhang Yong hisses. It's there in your rib, Li Jing confirms, walking her fingers from his chin to throat, throat to chest. Her sorcery follows like a puppy. Li Jing flattens a palm over his heart. Are you sure you want chandeliers? It seems a bit tawdry for a bookstore. He nods, features contorted into a rictus. It will bring you rich customers. The rich don't read. Zhang Yong mimed a scowl. They do if they know what's good for them. The wise build their businesses on the spine of books. Li Jing's mouth quirks, and she cups the back of his neck with her other hand. Lips smooth against the creased flesh of his forehead. In the beginning, the two had considered divulging Li Jing's new endowment to their children, but discarded the idea. She was too old, and it was too little to warrant the torrent of questions to follow. And who knew where gossip would drag the revelation, 
which scientists might come demanding access to the contents of Li Jing's flesh. A poet to the end, aren't we? Can't risk losing you to a young man yet. Yet. The word catches Li Jing off guard, a noose that bites deep. Preparation is not panacea, only armor to help weather sorrow. Regardless of Li Jing's efforts, reminders of her husband's mortality still cut like razors, dividing reason from self, leaving only heart flesh that is raw and red. She averts her face, but she is not quick enough. The humor in Zhang Yang's gaze, innocent in its frankness, dies at the anguish that flits through hers. I'm so sorry, darling. I'm... It's okay. Li Jing cannot endure his grief, not when she already has so much of her own to balance. Eat your dinner. I will clean up. Their eyes do not meet for fear of what might have pooled in them, salt in old wounds. Li Jing bows her head and stalks peace through a forest of unwashed dishes, through the fleeting rhythms of domesticity. This is slightly unexpected, Li Jing tells the procession at her door, caution beating hummingbird wings in her chest. They are all here, she thinks, the entire clan. Her eyes find relatives' memory had previously transformed into a vague blots of words and actions, grandnieces and grandchildren grown sapling sleek. Li Jing's gaze maps the bleakness of their attire, stark monochrome complemented by fisted hands and dour expressions. Wariness thickens into a weight. Everyone's here to see Ah Kong, Zhang Wei stands in the vanguard, comforting in his breadth. And you, of course. He's not dead. The statement is razored, a warning. Li Jing pushes on the door, only to locate Zhang Wei's foot in the split. You don't have to come en masse just yet. One at a time. And today is not a good day. He's tired, and so am I. Amma, please. Li Jing glances over the horizon of her shoulder, finds Zhang Yong's silhouette in the antechamber to their bedroom. She sighs. Her husband had always been the disciplinarian, she the tender heart of their family. Shang Wei's desperation peels back her shell, leaves only grudging assent. Only if you promise to keep the children quiet. The stream of guests is endless, overwhelming, coiling through the house like snakes. Li Jing loses herself in the cadence of their arrivals, oscillating from kitchen to seating areas, moving cups of tea and day-old pastries. Eventually, she allows her children and her grandchildren to assist her. Under her supervision, they concoct cookies, mugs of hot chocolate, delicate things to nibble upon between anecdotes. The hours pass. Suspicion melts into an elegiac contentment, even as Li Jing watches Zhang Yang come alive under the constant attention. It has been months since his eyes glittered so brightly. Only once, 
At some indistinct point in the afternoon, does she feel a whine of irrational terror, a worry that they might be thieving from a diminishing supply, that when they leave, they leave her with only a husk of a husband, hollowed of humanity. But her panic is fleeting, replaced by guilt. That's not how people work, Li Jing tells herself, pushing aside the warning bells that clang and dance in the back of her head. The hours continue their patient march. Where do you keep Ah Kong's things? Li Jing jolts her head up. Most of the guests have departed, leaving only Zhang Wei and his woman, an older couple that Li Jing does not recognize in their brood of three, a niece she barely remembers. Faces without names, perambulating through a home suddenly two sizes too small. Why is the only word that she can manage. They're expecting him at the home. The home? Li Jing repeats, throat parched. What home? There's a nursing home at the corner of the city, Zhang Wei replies, his eyes roving the room unwilling to meet Li Jing's. It's a good place. Great, in fact. Highest rated in the whole city. They even have a dedicated zoning area for patients. Beautiful, beautiful place. Well attended. Grandpa will look splendid there. Li Jing's voice is child-soft. Child-meek. But we decided he would stay here. Besides... Our neighborhood needs a bookstore. What if he becomes a library instead? You hardly have the space for that. He won't, Li Jing thinks. I've seen the blueprints tattooed on his stomach. I've seen the cache of books in his liver, the oaken shelving of his ribs, the old-fashioned cash register nursed in his left lung. That's not the point, Li Jing tells her grandchild, hands convulsing. No, Zhang Wei agrees, stepping forward to arrest her shoulders with broad palms. The point is we're trying to do what is best for you. I promise you, it will be fine. You need to believe me. Come, Ama. We've even organized a rotation system. You'll have rooms with all of us and live with each family a week at a time. No, Li Jing says, trying to wrestle away. But Shang Wei's grip is as inexorable as death's advances. No, I'm not going with you. It'd be fine, Shang Wei sighs, voice now feathered with a twinge of frustration. Besides, look, Ah Kong agreed. He unfurls a cream-colored parchment its tail branded with Zhang Yong's jagged signature. You tricked him! Be reasonable, Ahma. Why would I do that? He's old. You... I didn't see him reading that. He didn't talk to me about it, and we always, always discuss contracts together. What did you do? What did you do? Li Jing's voice crests into a shout, red-stained with fury. She squeezes her eyes shut. Her veins feel stretched like power cords, crackling. I told him what he needed to know. 
Anyway, it's all decided. Ama, please, don't make this difficult. No. Li Jing closes a fist, feels her fingers constrict around her dread, around the panic that clogs her lungs and her thoughts and her throat, feels her grip choke earth and stone, walls and wood, and something breaks. You are not taking away my husband. Li Jing startles at the scream, for it is almost hers. It emanates from every dimension, avalanche loud, incendiary. The old woman opens her eyes and marvels as the room curls around her like a loyal serpent, pillars and rafters curving like the bowed backs of religious supplicants. Get out, she snarls between sobs. Get out and leave us. Get out and take away all of your presumptions, your rotations, your, your, get out. When her family hesitates, Li Jing answers with a ripple of the floor, spears of cherry wood coursing forward like hounds on the hunt. It takes a heartbeat for Epiphany to strike, but the other occupants of her bloodline soon flee in a stampede of footsteps and wails. Dear... The house throbs in Li Jing's blood. She can feel her husband's heartbeat slackening, cooling to rock, to the ticking of a grandfather clock. In all the clamor, she has lost track of her husband's condition. I'm here, Li Jing stumbles to Zhang Yong's side, sinks to her knees. Her embrace is ferocious. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I'm afraid. Too soon, too soon, too soon. The thought presses salt into the membrane of her eyes. She thought they had more time together, more weeks. This is too soon. What she says instead is, I'm here. She will tell him that a thousand times if she has to, until her words become a wall between him and the dark. And it will be all right. And when I die, I'll have them put my bones in your garden. We'll be together always. Zheng Yong says nothing, only tenses his hold on her hand. I'm here. Don't worry, Li Jing repeats softly, as though the statement was an invocation against grief. She is still whispering to him when the light bleeds from his eyes, when his skin grays to stone, when her heart disintegrates to ash. A day passes. Li Jing's family return. Instead of her cottage, they discover a gray cube twenty feet high, smooth and featureless as an egg. There are no windows, no exits. They wait for a time, believing Li Jing will eventually emerge. Even the unnatural must eat. But she does not. A week flits by. Two weeks. Three. By the end of the 21st sunset, her family surrenders its pursuit. Li Jing and her husband are pronounced deceased, their epitaphs a flurry of tisking noises. By the end of the year, Li Jing and her husband are consigned to myth and drunken discussion, legends without substance, ghosts to be studied without the frame of truth.
If you promise not to be disruptive, you may visit the store. Li Xing. Li Xing signs the last letter and sighs. Her fingers are brocaded with ink, her smile with exhaustion. A part of her aches for the liberty of isolation. It would be simpler than explaining everything that had transpired, so much easier than instructing herself not to loathe Zhang Wei for his intent, to forgive his motivation, if not his actions. But that is not what Zhang Yong would have desired. Li Jing sips tea from a cup made from her husband's bones, its golden heat suffusing the ivory with something almost like life. Her eyes wander the ribs of her new domicile. The story is beautiful, lush with books and paintings like photographs, conjured flawless from history. When she closes her eyes, Li Jing can see her family exploring the space investigating cabinet and bookshelf, stove and garden. Briefly, she wonders how Zhang Wei will take to the statuette of him, marble-skinned and pissing fresh water into a horseshoe-shaped pond. Tomorrow, she decides, she will send out the letters and court her family's questions. Tonight, it is tea and reading and learning the patterns of this unfamiliar silence, which sit as awkwardly as new lovers. Nothing will ever replace the way Shang Yang's presence curled around hers, jigsaw snug. There will never be a sow for the gasping loneliness she experiences each morning when she awakens and, in that purgatory between sleep and awareness, forgets why his side of the bed is unfilled. But she will survive, will rebuild her existence brick by brick around the absence. Li Jing has a lifetime of memories in her foundations. It will never be perfect again, but it will be, someday, enough. Li Jing splays her book, begins to read, and in the quiet, the rustle of pages sounds like the chuckle of love departed but never forgotten. And welcome back. With this story, Cassandra has beautifully captured the muddled family emotions around what to do when someone you love is dying and someone else you love is caring for them, waiting. Everyone thinks they have the right answer and it's only logical to do this or that, especially with elderly relatives. What I love about this story is that it's from Li Jing's perspective, a tiny bit like Clint Eastwood's character in Gran Torino. Of course, Li Jing has a bit of a secret in that she can shape or direct the course of Zhang Yong's transformation. Will the family understand what she's done? Possibly not. But... Li Jing and Zhang Yong end their journey together in the way they wanted. Not a bad thing to hope for. Not a bad thing at all. On to feedback now. Let's look at episode 381, The Vandalists, by Natalia Teodorodou, read to you by The Voice of England, in Stuart. Well, this one pretty much got a big old 
Oh? Quantum Crayons dropped by to say, The writing itself was very well done and I really enjoyed the setting, a city where the unexpected is now not only expected but embraced, other than the ending of course. That said, it didn't really come together as I'd hoped it would. I was still left at the end unsure about exactly what was going on and how exactly the three characters were connected, other than in passing. Father Beast snarked a little bit with this comment, and now Podcastle presents Modern Art. But Gary had this to say, Okay, so I really liked this one, which quite surprises me. Escape artists have run a few of these surrealist abstract stories across their podcasts before, and they've always left me feeling lost and bored at best and just annoyed at worst. Somehow the vandalists managed to wade into that genre of nonsensical reality while keeping me totally engaged in what will happen next. For me, apparently, there's a fine line between total randomness and good storytelling, and this story manages to walk that tightrope magnificently. Bravo. Where did the vandalists fall on the spectrum for you? Pretty darn good? An unconvinced shrug? Or what the hell was that? Come tell us at forum.escapeartists.net, where you're always welcome. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, thanks for stopping by and listening to the story. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is Graham Dunlop, reminding you that the wise build their businesses on the spine of books. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, go to their website at shiva-in-exile.de. Cassandra Clare said... No one can say that death found in me a willing comrade, or that I went easily. <laughs>